Hello, welcome to the W Freelancing Podcast. I'm your host, Zach Swinehart. I'm here today with Prerna and Mayank Malik. I'm really excited to talk with them. They run contentbistro.com. A few of my little bullet-pointed cool things about their business that I have down is 600K a year-ish in revenue from just them plus contractors. Uh, they're doing like the blueprint style marketing in action. I recently did a blog post writing workshop where I like audited your guys's like content marketing strategy. I was like, these guys are doing it right. So that was pretty cool. You got a free shout out in the workshop. <laughs> um, they have a cool multi hybridized business structure where they do some like bespoke services, some productized services, some programs, some coaching. So they've got their hands in like a lot of different revenue pots, which I think is pretty cool. Um, they live in India with a U.S. based client base and their husband and wife. So they're just like so many standalone episodes that could come from this <laughs> one little intro. Um, they've worked with big names like Pat Flynn. They've been featured on Forbes on Smart Passive Income and other cool places that I hadn't heard of. So I just said those sexy ones. Um, I'll be picking their brain about their history, trajectory to get here, lead generation strategy and business model. So this interview series is the start the right type of business series. I sent you guys the overview already, but I'll give a little recap right now. So, and and I bet you'll have some things to say about business models versus structures, but basically I'm putting on this course called the start the right type of business course. Cause I noticed that a lot of people, um, they kind of conflate business models and business structures. And I feel like business models are easy to change. It's like how you package your services, how you sell your stuff, but the structure, whether it's bespoke services, productized coaching program, these things are slower pivots. And uh, what I love about you guys is you have so many different business structures and, and stuff. So I'm really, I'm curious to get your, your take on all of these things and stuff. So I've been rambling for a minute, um, but really my, my goal for today is if somebody is listening and they're like, I'd say most of our audience is in the state where they are freelancing with just a handful of clients, like doing the typical thing where we all start, where you have clients doing random stuff all across the board. You work with just a handful of clients. You want to be getting more systematic leads coming in and they want to streamline a service offering, but they haven't yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're kind of trying to decide, do I want to grow an agency? Do I want to move into courses? Do I want to stay solo? And so I'm hoping that this interview can kind of like show some of the pros and cons of the different strategies. And you guys, since you're doing the hybrid, I'm sure you have a lot to say. So all that's out of the way. Uh, with regards to where your business is at now, let's just dig into that a little bit. So um, in a sentence, if you were to tell me like what kinds of clients you serve and what the business impact is for them and, and what you do for them. Uh, like if I'm at a networking event, I'm like, hey guys, what does Content Bistro exactly do? Uh, what would you What would you say? So we work with ROI-focused entrepreneurs on their copy, content, and growth, depending on what they need and where they are in their business. Okay. And it, from what I've seen, like I obviously see the course creator sorts of folks and stuff, but it sounds like you don't only help course creators and it's all sorts of businesses or what's the... Yes, that's there? right. So we work with... So like you, you mentioned, we have... Uh, we have three sides to the business, right? And across all three sides, we the common uniting factor between our clients is they want a return on their investment, whether they work with us on their copy, on their sales strategy, on their business growth. Um, and yes, our clients include everyone from course creators, creative entrepreneurs, e-commerce businesses, service providers, SaaS, ed tech, you know, um, mm. that's just a small sample of 
folks that we work with. <laughs> okay. And so of these different like kind of industry niches or like, so you have this common thread, they want an ROI. Mm. Um, are there any big buckets niche wise that you do serve or is it, is it really just kind of all over the place? I would say we've always been, <laughs> you know, something that we, we tend to joke about is that we're fashionably nicheless. So we, <laughs> we've never boxed ourselves into a niche. Our niche, I would say if you had to like kind of really go granular would come from the kind of services that we offer in the sense that we do focus a lot on sales copy, sales emails, sales strategy. Um, that is what we, but even in that, you know, it's not just, oh, I'm only going to be writing sales pages and not sales yeah. emails. No, we do all of that. Or uh, I'm only going to be doing live launches and not evergreen. Nope, we've done all of that. We've even done hybrids. <laughs> so, um, and same for, for, you know, for strategy and consulting, like we've worked with businesses across um, niches, industries, verticals, and yeah, you name it, we probably work with it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And one of the reasons we've never really focused on a particular niche is because we find it really exciting to be working across niches. So mm -hmm. it's not like you've written one or two sales pages and you're sort of churning out similar yeah. stuff. Um, also, I mean, there's so much exciting stuff to learn from entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. So when you're researching uh, or even if you're working on, say, strategy with them, uh, there's so much that's happening behind the scenes. So, I mean, we find it really exciting um, working in diverse niches. Yeah, that makes sense. And you also probably get a lot, I assume, of value, like in terms of seeing things that are commonplace in one industry and that are super rare in another and things like that. I've noticed that yeah. quite a bit. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. Um, but I, it does stick out to me that with so much varied work delivery and so many varied clients, like every project is different. And I would think in terms of trying to scale, that would be a challenge, but you guys, you have some inherent scale, but maybe that's, maybe your answer to that was like, well, we're not going to try to bespoke or scale the bespoke stuff. And we're going to scale and get that for the leverage by just like doing the productized things in other ways. Maybe that's what you did. I don't know. Is that what you did? Not really. Like, okay. <laughs> so we do have packages for our copywriting services and even for our consulting services, you know, um, we do have packages what we have, how we have been able to scale because, you know, like last year, I think we did what, 300 odd K or 350 odd K from copywriting and the rest 400 K, 400 K from copywriting. The way we were able to scale those services is essentially by really optimizing our process. So our mm. for copy, our process works regardless of niche, industry, project scope, um, yeah, type of launch or even like website copy, I, you know, that's something that I've done a lot of. So, but because our process is so finely tuned, it really makes no difference what industry or what niche a client is from. Wow. And they do get results, you know, and which is why they come back. So uh, all of this to say, it's not just, oh, our process helps us work, you know, um, work faster. Yes, yes, it does. But it also ensures that our clients get epic results. Yeah, totally. Do you do who does the writing? Is it the two of you or do you have some of these contractors writing also? Oh, the writing is on me. There is one writer on the team. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's very impressive then that you can do that much output with just I mean, I guess it, 
you're quite leveraged, you're doing close to the money work. So your effective hourly rate for the writing is probably quite high. But nonetheless, um, that's cool that you're able to get to that point. I, so I've always struggled with scaling for bespoke services because of how hard it is to make a process. So like hmm. as a web designer, if I do say a like a learn dash customization course build out or sales page, something like that, like it, it's always been really challenging to make a process that I could give to a more commoditized staff member. Mm. Unless that pro process has one step that's like, okay, step one, make a good course website. <laughs> step two, <laughs> you know, like, but in, ter in terms of actually delineating it, it would be mm. hard. And so I guess, I guess in this case, since you don't have any other writers, you don't, you don't necessarily need the process to say, write a headline that passes these criteria because it's going through your secret sauce brain or something. Okay. That is so right. how... <laughs> For... For writing, uh, the process is divided into into five key phases, right? And that the there's a bulk of the like the process that happens before writing. In fact, um, so the first is of course you know where you get to know the client, their brand, their voice, and all of that. So research itself is split across three phases. Then the writing happens. Then the editing. And then, of course, it goes to the client for approval, which is like the final phase. So our research phase is what we've, you know, optimized really well. Mm. So by the time I get all of that data, when I say data, I mean like, you know, voice of customer data, the, you know, details about the course. And um, that is something, you know, I, so when I have to sit down to write, I can hit the ground running. And yeah. I'm not like, oh, where do I start? Yeah, totally. Do you have VAs helping with that research process or is this all you? So for research, we do have a, we have a research specialist working with us. You know, um, we also do a bit of research on our own in terms of the offer optimization phase. That's one part that we do, both of us do together, uh, where we meet with the client after we've gone over their offer itself, like whether it's a course or a service or a, you know, a product, and we help them optimize it better before I start writing copy. So that's the phase that the two of us do together. Um, the um, uh, If it's a course, then going through the course and kind of getting data from that, that's something that, you know, um, I tend to do. But we do have mm -hmm. help for, you know, doing interviews or distilling survey data um, and all of that, yeah. Cool, like doing doing literal one-to-one -one interviews, you have somebody who does those? Yes. Yes. Cool, how did, is, so I know you said you work with contractors, so no one's full-time, or at least no one's a full-time employee other than the two of you, yeah? Yeah. So yep. is this, this person who does the interviews, are they like a generalized coach who you gave an SOP to, or is their whole thing, I do customer interviews, or what's, how'd you get that sorted? That seems cool. Their whole thing is I do customer interviews. <laughs> that's that's the contract. That's their our contract with them is for customer interviews. We identify a certain number that we need. Um, if there's a survey, um, you know, then uh, going through the survey data, going through the you know the testimonials, data mining, all of that. That's their thing. Cool. And when they do these, and this is going to be deep, so I'll I'll scale us back because nobody but copywriters would care about this. But when they do those. Do they position themselves as like a staff member of your client's company or, or how do they? How a, do team they... Member. a team cool. member. A team member. Yeah. 
of our company. Our clients introduce oh. us as working on copy and launches and things like that. And the research specialist is a team member for us, not for the client. Mm. Yes. Okay. That's cool. It's cool to see how, how that would feel from the customer side. Nice. So let me get myself back on track before I go too in the weeds. I've been lately, I put my own cue in the Q&A because I've been trying to create like a voice style guide so that I could hire mm -hmm. writers to write for clients because that's where I've always struggled. And so I have to be careful to not not steer the interview into the direction I'm curious about, <laughs> but the broadly appealing one. Okay, so um, let's do the breakdown. So we, we know that you help pretty much any kind of business that is like growing their business wants an ROI and needs conversion-oriented copy. So um, let's talk about the ways that you do that because I know you have these different breakdowns. Like what's the pie chart of your business and service offerings and things like that? So if, if we look at, say, last year and... I'd say it's pretty much been consistent over the last three to four years. Um, so typically anywhere between, say, 50 to 60% of our revenue is coming from services. Uh, it was slightly skewed last year because we had a massive project where just a single project uh, was uh, 100K. Mm -hmm. So that sort of skewed the numbers a little bit. But otherwise, typically, I'd say it's about 50% services, another... 20% consulting and say another 28 to 30% would be our program. Uh, that's generally been the split in the last say about three or four years. Okay. And that that one random 100K client being being the outlier, like what's your typical amount of client? Because if you're if you're doing about 600K a year, 50 to 60% services, so that's as you say about 400-ish services, how mm -hmm. many clients go into that 400K that you work with? Hmm. I'd say on an average, it would be on the copywriting side of things, say about eight to 10 clients, maybe 12 clients at the most. We do have a lot of repeat work that comes from clients. Yeah. So yeah. so typically, even if somebody were to sign on for, say, a, a 10K or a 15K package, mm -hmm. we would serve them in some shape or form, either strategy, consulting, or maybe more copy packages. On an average, I would say um, on, on this side of the business, the the average order value is if if you were is is about say about 30k to 35k for us yeah okay and you mentioned the percent that's from consulting is that something where it's like hey we've got an in-house writer but we want you to help with the strategy or something or what what's that usually look like so our consulting services essentially are for other business owners and not so much you know like oh um you know where people have in-house copywriters but that is definitely something we are adding into the mix this year where we'll be going mm -hmm. in to train in-house teams uh to consult with you know businesses and corporates who have you know writers but want them to write better and faster and stronger you know all of those things um but right now the majority of our consulting is with other business owners who want to either grow their business or maybe get into copywriting but have not you know don't really know where to Hard, what kind of packages mm -hmm. to offer or uh, how much to charge or how to position themselves. Those are the things that we generally consult on um, so far. Yeah. Yeah. And and we do have a one-off sort of consulting options where, where you've got a particular thing that, that mm -hmm. you want help with. But we also have a small group mastermind where mm -hmm. it's essentially we see that as consulting. Yeah. So we typically gotcha. work with, say, about eight to 10 entrepreneurs at a time 
Um, generally, um, it's it's six months at a time, but we see people go on for about a year. Mm-hmm. So so that's also an aspect to, to the consulting okay. business. Yeah. So maybe it's what I would call coaching. Because when I think of consulting, I think of it as like some True. organization has you come in to do a thing. But it, this yeah. is more like, hey, I want to pick I want you guys to coach me. And it's, that's what this 20 percent is. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. It, okay. it is coaching okay, cool. and consulting. Yeah. 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 And then you said 30% from a, from your program or programs. Yep. Yep. Is it so, one like flagship or is it breakdown? We have one flagship with two tiers. Yeah. Okay. And what is that? Just the, just so, to establish the scope. Oh yeah. So it's called ready to sell. It's a strategy focused copywriting program that basically teaches everything that I do for clients. Cool. <laughs> right from the research phase to writing to writing all kinds of copy assets in, from opt-in pages, sales pages, blog posts, emails, social captions, literally everything I do, but with a very high focus on strategy because you just don't want to, you know, you you can't just write the same opt-in page for everybody and anybody, right? You can't yeah. write the same kind of sales page for everybody. So it has a it has a huge strategy first focus on it. It has two tiers. Um, one is called Revenue Ready, which gives you the program, um, all the content, the community. You get uh, access to it for the life of the program for as long as we continue to run it, which technically people call lifetime, but we all know no one's going to be running their programs when they're 90. So <laughs> let's be real about that. Uh, so it's for the life of the program. They get access to the program community and the calls and you know all of the bonuses, everything. And then we have the chef stable version, which is um, where they get one-on-one time uh, with uh, Mike and me. They can choose to use that time either for business coaching or for co-creating a copy asset of their choice. So uh, we give them that um, that option. Plus, they get most of my, not most, pretty much all of my copy um, writing, you know, client-facing thing, uh, documentations and things that I use, like testimonials or questions that I ask or um, our onboarding process, offboarding, they get like literally that whole. Cool. And do you have, so that the process you mentioned earlier that brings all your efficiency and stuff, they get that as well. Yeah. Yes. 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 Cool. Yes. Yes. Where could I, if I wanted to learn more about this, where would I go? What's the link? Contentbistro.com backslash ready to sell. There's a wait list open for it right now. Um, But yeah, you could get on the wait list. Cool. All right. So let's break down a little further. I got to try to go fast, but I also want to know the deets. So team size, structure, who does what? And I'm I'm especially curious, and I think Sam submitted a question on it as well. Like, I'm curious how you divide up responsibilities, like as a husband and wife team kind of thing as well. Um, but yeah, so what? So it's the two of you, and then you have contractors. So who all is involved in making your business happen? So between the two of us, we've sort of evolved over the years. We know what our strengths are, uh, what areas are we not really good at. So uh, the good thing is we have complementary strengths. So if if I could do good at data analysis and um, process improvements, working on better profitability levels, uh, general growth of the business, um, Prina's uh, exceptional at executing, at um, creating copy for clients and for our brand really fast. As far as contractors and the team that we have, we both sort of pitch in to see um, which which contractor uh, needs, say, our attention at that time. Mm. So, so that's pretty much how we've split um, our areas of work. Okay. And 
in terms of team, we have, um, so because they're contractors, uh, we tend to work with them on project basis. Some of them, of course, we end up working with on, on an ongoing basis, like our designer, for example, we, there's always something that needs designing. Plus we also get like, even for our clients, you know, um, if I'm writing a sales page for them, we don't just give them the Google Doc, they get a beautiful wireframe that they can then hand over to their designer. And, you know, it makes everybody's life so much simpler as well. So they get the copy developed. So that our designer does that pretty much. So because we have ongoing client projects, we also have, you know, like our designer is someone we work with pretty much on an ongoing basis. We know, we let her know that, you know, she always needs to keep time for us. Um, and so that's someone we work with. Our, then you have a VA, again, who gives us a certain number of hours. Uh, research specialists we work with, again, on a project basis. So if it's a client project and uh, where the res there is no research, we bring them in. If it's a repeat client project where we already have the research, then, of course, you know, we don't really need, um, need that for that particular project. Um, we have an accountant. Um, and, of course, then we have the web tech um uh, team they they're a small business who you know he have a retainer to just ensure that a website keeps running and we don't need you know like it doesn't go down and there's no mm -hmm. you know stuff to kind of that freaks us out basically yeah. um so those are um uh, that's essentially um uh, the team in a nutshell and we do have a, a course concierge some uh, you know uh, someone who works inside our course to ensure like everyone who's there is well taken care of. They, you know, if anyone has any, like, oh, I can't access this kind of questions. And if we aren't around, you know, they take care of that, setting up the calls, uploading the calls into the dashboard, all of that um, stuff. So yes, um, that's, that's our contractor team in a nutshell. And so your course concierge doesn't do like generalized executive assistant stuff for the business. It's just within the scope of the course? Yes. 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 So it sounds like you have a, a pretty lean and also very low kind of like fixed cost kind of structure, which is awesome. True. Um, I'm curious, I forgot to ask earlier, how do you price your projects? Not necessarily what do you price them at, but more like, do you do flat rate? Do you do weekly rates? Like how, if I if I say, hey, can you do blah, blah, blah for me? And you say, sure, it's going to cost blank. How do you mm. how do you handle the pricing for bespoke work specifically? Yeah. These are, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so, so typically what, what we normally do is we work with what we like to call an internal Ali rate. So, so say, for instance, if this custom project, um, if, if we feel it's going to take, say, about 10 hours to deliver, so we say, for instance, if the Ali rate is $1,000, so that's 10 into 1,000, so you, you get to 10,000, then we'll see what sort of involvement do we have with contractors. We'd add that up. Um, if we have some consulting aspect, maybe add that up and then come up with a price. Uh, obviously, every project's different, so sometimes you'd end up spending more time that, than what you planned, but sometimes it's the other way around. So uh, eventually, and and that's uh, been our approach in, in terms of growing the services side of the business, um, and that is why we've been able to start at, say, 20 or 30K, where we were getting just 20, 30K from services, and now it's 400K is because mm -hmm. all those processes are optimized and um, we do do look at pricing as well, but there's only so much you could do with pricing and you do come to a stage where you can't really increase it more. That's why process optimization is more important. So even if that's same price point, you're putting in less hours, 
you could right. do more projects. And, and for the client itself, like if you were to come to us and say, okay, like, to answer your question where you said, okay, you know, if I were to come to you and say, if I needed A, B, and C, you, after we've done this, uh, the whole, our internal pricing thing, you would get a flat rate. Yeah, okay, and cool. that cool. is why when you go to our site, we do have packages that you, if you want to just apply for one of those, you could do it straight off the site. Uh, because it just keeps things very, very clear and simple. We don't do hourly. We don't do weekly. We don't do anything other than flat cool. rates. Yeah. And and I love that, by the way. And I just want to make sure I understand correctly. So you're saying when you're coming up with your internal price, what you're saying is I want yeah. my personal or like both of your co collectively, each of your effective hourly rate should be a thousand bucks an hour. So if it's going to take you one hour to manage the team, four hours to write, two hours to do blah, blah, blah. But then your team is going to do, say, 40 hours. You're essentially saying, okay, so for our, quote, time cost, it needs to be 1000 bucks because that's 10 hours between the two of us. And then we've got 40 Ooh. staff hours, and we're going to mark theirs up by however much from their rates, and that's the price. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Cool. What do you typically... So if you have your effective hourly rate at 1000 what do you typically aim for as your like percentage markup from your projected staff hours on top of what you pay them? Um, not a lot. Um, mm. I would say maybe maybe a fifteen or a twenty percent markup, mm. um, because we, with the hourly rate that we have internally, we already bake in the sort of uh, fixed costs mm. that we have, whether it's to do with tools or the or the regular say designer uh, work that's going to happen. So so not not a big markup, no. Cool. And I imagine at this point, since you have these home processes, I would guess. Your projections of the staff hours are usually pretty accurate. Like, what have you ever had? Re like recently, because you've been doing this for a while. Within the past couple of years, any crazy scope creep, bloat things where you're like, "Oh shit, this just took twice as many staff hours as we thought." Okay. No. One reason for that is also because the team that we work with, the contractors, they have flat rates too. Like they oh, have. okay. Yeah, so, no, we, yeah. So you know, even the research specialist has a package rate that she they give us and you know they're like okay this is what it's going to be this is like once we let them know okay these we need these many interviews this is going to have a survey or it's not going to have a survey or it's going to have three different surveys depending on what kind of data sources we have or what we need again depending on the scope of the scope of the project itself okay well again yet yet again like so when I did my interview with Brennan and he was talking about how his business was when he had an agency back in the day he had all these like crazy fixed expenses and they eat into the margins and stuff and I love yep. I love this. Like you guys are very intentional with your structure. And, you know, yeah. if you sell one package and your costs are comprised of fixed rate package, like you know exactly how much money you're going to make. And that's great. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Absolutely. The variant question I'll ask then, since you guys haven't had it because you pay your flat rates, have your contractors ever had it in the past couple of years where like, oh, I bid this as if it would take me 10 hours and it just took me like 20. So shit, now my right sucks. Or have they not had scope load either? No, I don't think so. And all of them have like fairly well organized businesses where they do, you know, uh, periodically raise their rates if their costs of doing business sometimes increase or if they've, you know, let's say some one of them, you know, gotten like, say, maybe uh, acquired more skills or, you know, even just gone deeper into the work that they're doing, whether it's like, you know, oh, customer research and all of that, and they've gotten additional training and things like that, they let us know ahead of time that, hey, I'll be, you know, because of said training, I've acquired additional skills that I'll be bringing to the projects I do. I'll be increasing my rates by X amount by this date, which kind of then gives us enough time to budget accordingly. So yeah. I feel like 
if you are a contractor working with another service provider, that is super important that you don't just bring rate increases on them out of the blue because it's, you know, for every business owner looking at their not just forecasting revenue, but also forecasting their profit margins, things like that. These are numbers that are super important for them to look at. And it's just, you know, it just makes for a really great working relationship if you give them enough notice that, um, and not just an arbitrary date that, hey, it's January 1st, so I'm going to, you know, (laughs) increase my rates and you're supposed to just kind of roll with it. Yeah, yeah, and and this is something we we normally have a discussion with uh, the the contractor when we're doing uh, a debrief for a particular project. Yeah. So we meet them. Our touch points are pretty much every month, sometimes once in six weeks. So we do have a sense uh, where the business is heading. Are they still going to offer the mm-hmm. service come January? Yeah. When are they planning to increase rates? So so because we have regular touch points, we're pretty much in sync with what's happening. Yeah, that's awesome. And something that I've been reflecting on and wanting to experiment with is when I was running my agency in the past with contractors, like I was trying to do the thing where you you get more arbitrage on the hourly rate by finding someone who's more in that commoditized, newer kind of area, and then you get mm-hmm. more markup. But it's I've always felt like it's such a lost opportunity that I never I never tried hiring someone who I didn't have a huge margin on who was like very expensive. So I don't really know what it would be like, but my hunch has always been, you know, I bet if you're not trying to pay a developer $25 an hour, like, you know, you could probably get a better developer. So I'm kind of curious. It sounds like with you guys, you are not just hiring cheap commodity consultants. You are, it sounds like you're hiring people who are really good and probably not cheap. Yes. For us, client experience at every point, whether it's our services or our programs or the coaching, client experience comes first for us like we want our clients to have an exceptional experience i mean just our copy projects like man was saying like those are five-figure investments right like you cannot (laughs) in all good faith and integrity tell a business owner to pay you five figures and then nickel and dime your way to providing that experience i mean that is not how this works you know if you want to build a business that is known for doing great work then you gotta do great work and if you need to bring in people for that, you want those people to do great work too. So I know, I mean, like, you know, again, that's our approach. Like we've always been very clear. It doesn't mean that, you know, oh, we won't, we would just go ahead and hire whoever is the most expensive out there. No, we do our due diligence. Uh, we want to look at, you know, how to, how can we bake this into our projects, our pricing and all of that. But at the end of the day for us, you know, and that's something that, you know, we've always been very clear on is ensuring that our clients get an exceptional experience and how can we make that happen? That's awesome. Uh, I'm curious, just if you're comfortable sharing, like what would you say the average effective hourly rate of your subcontractors comes out to? Mm, we've never really looked at it from from a early rate standpoint, because like, yeah. like Rena said, it's um, like the research specialist uh, if they charge two thousand or two thousand five hundred dollars, um, I don't know. They would be spending what about I have 20, 25 hours, or okay. I mean, it kind of boils down to their process. Like hmm, what yeah. we do is we don't we don't ask them. Okay, how many hours is this going to take you? Yeah, you're we just don't asking for that. The result. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What would you charge for that? Hmm. Same with the designer. Like we don't care if it takes her thirty minutes or yeah. it takes her sixty minutes or ninety minutes or whatever. We just let her know, hey, this is what we'll need. 
what would you charge? <laughs> and if yeah. it works for us, then yes, let's do it. Yeah. And so I imagine, like, the reason I ask this, so number one, I have, I have two branching questions. One is going to be, like, asking about when you mentioned when you were at an earlier stage, at that, like, 30 to 40K a year stage. I'm mm -hmm. curious yes. how your subcontractor pricing incorporations varied between then and now. And then the other thing I was thinking about is, like, suppose suppose you lost your designer and or or some other small part of the project and you were trying to find a new one uh, yeah. and you had to like you let me think of how to articulate basically what i'm wondering is if you lost something that represents a small kind of aspect of the value mm -hmm. delivered to clients mm -hmm. and you tried to find someone who was just as good but the only way you could find someone who was just as good would be someone who was like i don't know let's say 50 percent more expensive mm -hmm. so like considerably mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. In that case, would you eat into your margins? Would you raise your prices? Or would you try to find someone who was the same price, even if they weren't quite as good? I'm curious, like, where the value hierarchy goes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So so essentially, because of uh, not landing in a situation like this, we normally have at least two contractors yeah. for for a given piece. So yeah. if it's research, then it's not just one person that we're working with, because sometimes they... They probably don't have availability. Sometimes we need quicker turnaround times. Yeah. Having said that, if we do get into that situation, um, definitely eat that cost. Yes. Um, not raise the price. Still give a great client experience. Yeah. Then solve for it later in terms of what you can do mm. to processes or maybe uh, hiring differently. But that's yeah. that's definitely the longer game. But cool. Smart. But yeah. Yeah. And to go back to you, the first part of your question that when we were at the 30K, 40K, 50K, sub 100K mark, you know, um, how did our subcontracting look? It looked very different. We were not subcontracting all of this out. Mm. This came about much later. <laughs> we were, you, you can either spend time or you can spend money, right? So we chose to spend time. And one of the reasons I'm really grateful that we did that because it helped us to see, okay, which parts of the process do we want to hire out first for? And then, oh, I was, I'm sorry. When we were talking about team, we also have an editor on um, as a contractor who's a big part of the of the team as well. And that is what I was coming to. Is like one of the big things when we did start hiring out. Like unlike most businesses where they would have probably gone for a VA, you know, we went for an editor again. Client experience. We wanted our clients to have an exceptional experience, and we wanted our documents that go out to them be professionally edited. So, an editor was the first contractor that we did bring on, um, and hired out for research. Came much much later. Uh, for the longest time ever, research was split between Mike and me. You know, I would do the interviews, and then Mike would do the data mining, and you know, just kind of compiling everything and all of that, which is great because then you know how things are done and. I don't say yeah. I, I would say like I, I recommend everyone does that. Like if you can, if you can choose to hire out right out of the gate, go for it. But if not, that's okay because when you yeah. do hire out, you know exactly what you're hiring out for. You know, you know if there's a break in the process somewhere. You know, um, you know just how to kind of keep your expectations right. It, it's like a whole other experience. So yeah, just to yeah, answer your question. You you so even know if they're good. Like you wouldn't even exactly. know otherwise. Exactly. That's the, exactly. that's the thing that would be scary. Exactly. You don't learn yes. they suck until your client tells you. <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I like uh, this question Jasmine submitted. She asked, how do you make sure, and I, I have a feeling I can guess the answer, but I want to hear it. Without saying anything, how do you make sure 
that your contractors give their very best when they might mm-hmm. have their own clients who they have like a hierarchy preference thing too. Yeah, it comes down to trust. It comes down to trust and it comes down to, again, going back to what we we're talking about doing your due diligence when, you're, when you are hiring. When you are hiring, you don't hire just for skill. You also hire for attitude, right? You want to be able to speak to someone and know that they will treat your clients with the same kind of, you know, attention and respect that you were to give them. And it's, and again, you know, because these are contractors, you always have the option of doing one project. And then if it isn't a great experience, then never going back. So um, for us, for the most part, we always, always, even with, um, in the past when we've hired a social media manager on retainer, you know, the first month is always a trial period for us to see how things go. Do we work well together? Do they enjoy working with us? Because it's not just us working with them. They're working with us too, right? So they need to enjoy that experience too. And same with, you know, any other client project, whether it's (coughs) designers, whether it's research, whether it's, you know, even, you know, course support. You always want to see how that first test project goes. And that kind of gives you an idea of whether or not you didn't, you know, it would be a win-win relationship for the both of you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And my thought, Jasmine, here is that like, if somebody is a subcontractor for an agency like Content Bistro, that's like a legit agency, really cool people to work with, good processes, like to me, working with one of their clients would be probably way nicer than a direct client because they just serve everything up for me on a silver platter. I get to just do my role. I don't have to like chase the client for them to just get me their freaking references and stuff like that. So there's that, that like niceness of work coupled with the gravy train of just free leads forever. Uh, I would think, frankly, most of their subcontractors would prioritize them over direct clients if as long as they didn't, these guys didn't suck, which they clearly don't. So (laughs) yeah, I, I would think this would be be pretty navigable. So um, I have one down to ask about profitability. It seems like you guys are quite profitable. Do you have an estimate of what your operating, like your fixed operating costs are and what your profit of that 600K is? Yeah, absolutely. So so we're anywhere between 25 to 30% uh, off our gross revenue in, in terms of expenses. So like for last year, it was about almost 30%, about 295 to 30%. Another 23 to 25% of our gross ends up going into tax payments. Um, so off um, whatever's the total revenue for the year, we end up keeping, say, about 45 to 47% of it as profits. So we, we, we had an even, even higher sort of uh, profit ratio a few years ago, but now that we've got more people on our team and the business has expanded and we are serving sort of uh, different um, avatars in the business. It's It's gone up slightly, but I'd say about four or five years ago, we were at about 56 to 58% net profit. And so of that 29%, which essentially comes out to essentially like $190,000 a year in expenses, mm-hmm. what percentage of that 190 do you reckon is for like fixed things like, you know, SaaS products and whatnot, or your accountant and blah, 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 versus what percentage is your subcontractors? Like is most of your cost these subcontractors? Or It is a big chunk. I'd, I'd say about a third, uh, maybe even 40% would be uh, subcontractors. Um, I don't think there's a lot that goes into tools. I'd probably say about 15%, maybe 18% or thereabouts. 
um, and then the rest is sort of spread across uh, other expenses. Okay. Learning and development and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and so where, so I, I'm, I have a multifaceted question. First off, how are you getting clients? Like where are the leads coming from? And then I'm also kind of curious where you learned it. Cause like, again, I said, you guys do like the blueprint in action. I don't know if you even took our course or if you just learned it from generalized internet marketing knowledge. Like, and I'm curious how much these podcast interviews and content marketing that you do, I'm, I'm wondering how much that drives leads versus your referrals, things like that. So I guess simple first question, where are your leads coming from? Referrals are definitely, um, I would say our number one source, um, very close behind it is podcasts and guest trainings just like this one. And then of course we've got our blog and social media, which is, at, which I would actually say email list, blog, and social media, which would be under number three. Those are our three main sources of leads. And do you do any special clever things to encourage more referrals or it's just, you know, you just, you just get them? Okay, yeah. So for referrals, one of the best things that we do is basically show up and do the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like I said, like client experience is huge for us and um, something that we, we talk a lot about and teach a lot and all of that. But ensuring a great client experience from start to finish, it's not just, oh, here, like I said, simple things. Like, okay, you, you're not just writing a sales page. You want your client to be able to go through the designer and then not have to struggle to have them translate the, you know, the 20 page sales page that you've written in Google Docs into a design yeah. because, you know you'll have the designer go, okay, but how, what am I supposed to do with this? So you want to convert it into like, get, take that extra step, get a wireframe done and then present it. Um, so just that makes a huge difference. And of course, then when clients get results, they talk about, it. for instance, I'll give you a very good example. So we worked with Vanessa Lau of Boss Gram Academy. She's since on hiatus, but um, what, when we worked together, like her launch for Bosscam Academy was over a million dollars, right? And I did everything, like from the from the strategy to the sales page to all of the emails and all of that, right? And what she did was when she recorded her YouTube video and her YouTube channel had like millions of subscribers, she recorded her YouTube video and she talked about how working with us was a huge part of that million dollar launch, right? So if you do great work and if your clients are... You know, yeah, we didn't ask her to do it, but she was mm. like, she did it out of her own free will. Like if when they talk about you, it just automatically opens up, you know, doors yeah. you didn't even know existed. Even if the, someone doesn't go to the extent of recording a YouTube video, shouting you out for their million dollar launch, you can't, you know, when you do good work, you get great testimonials. For example, yeah. Pat Flynn, you know, not you, no one's going to give you a testimonial if they didn't enjoy working with you. The moment you start collecting testimonials, it becomes so much easier for you to just start converting better clients. Like anyone who comes to your site would see that and would know that, hey, you know your work, you know. Um, and then, of course, like I said, going back to the fact you want to show up and do the work and do yeah. a really, really good job of it. For collecting testimonials, how do you usually, what's your process for getting them? Like, Because presumably you don't just sit back and wait for them to hopefully leave you one, or maybe you do. Do you have a no. specific approach for asking for them and stuff? Yeah. We actually have a two-part approach. So the first part kicks in during regular offboarding. Once the project is over, you let them know that, hey, it was great working with you and we'd love to know about your experience too. And here's a link to, you know, a type form. Or you can just reply to this email and let us know 
you know, what what did you enjoy the most, et cetera, et cetera. So that's part one. Part two is, especially if it's, whether it's an evergreen launch or a, or a live launch, part two kicks in like about 90 days later where you touch in with, t- touch base with the client and you say, hey, you know, curious to know how did the launch go? In fact, for live launches, mm. we stay in there. We we let them know that we are happy, like both Mike and I are in their Slack community or in their Asana or wherever during the launch and right until car close, you know, like just checking in every day, wanting to know what's happening, if any pivots are needed real time, because live launches are like, can be quite the beast. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're there. We don't just stop when our job is done. And that is something mm. that we had multiple clients, you know, really, really love that you're not just someone that you're not just a contractor or, a, you know, you integrate yourself with the team. And we do that even for evergreen launches or evergreen funnels where we, you know, check with the client and go, okay, hey, how's it going? Fill us in. And that is when you get the second part of the testimonial, which is results. Love it. The vibe I'm getting, I keep highlighting gems here in Fathom. I would say like the vibe I'm getting from you guys is that if you were to summarize your whole business outlook in one sentence, it would be like exceptional concierge service at every turn. <laughs> That's like your thing, it seems like. How would you yeah. describe it? Yeah. Yeah. Exceptional service and being very, very intentional about how are we showing up? How are we serving? What are we doing? And are we doing it well enough? So here's the question. When someone is first starting, like suppose you're getting like crappy commoditized work on Upwork where most of your clients is like, hey, make me a funnel for 500 bucks. <laughs> What's your thought on how you, how can you like do exceptional concierge, like premium high ticket servering ser- service offering when you are getting paid low commoditized rates or can you? What is your thought yes. on this? Yes, you can. Okay. For, I'm, I don't know, like not many of you would know this, but so our business, it started as a, like it actually the seeds of the business started when I started a mob blog and I used to write online for other mom bloggers. I used to also just to kind of build my writing muscles, write for code and code content mills, which back in the day, I'm talking 2008, y'all. So those were very popular. They used to pay you exactly what Zach was just talking about, like peanuts, right? But that's where I built my muscles. That's where I first started to work with an editor. So just kind of looking at, okay, so what's the learning I'm getting from this? How can I start, you know, oh, I can get better. I can get better. Your desire to get better needs to be stronger and really really you know there so if you if you are out of the gate a very strong writer kudos to you in that case but i would say go to step two which is start finding those better clients better Mm. clients do exist you this is not i'm not just saying it because you know oh right now we're at a stage where we have like truly exceptional clients i'm saying it because i was once at that stage like you where you know we did not have great clients, we went out and found them. And how do you do that? You you cold pitch, you warm pitch, you let your network know that, hey, this is what you do, who can you work with? And you refine your process with every single project. So that is what we did. Like we were, in fact, the other day looking at, we had this, uh, you know, um, pitch tracker back from what, 2013, 2012? 2012, yeah. 2012, yeah. so. We used to send out like 40 pitches in a day. Uh, sorry, 40 pitches in the month, you know, like, so that's almost a pitch a, a day kind of a thing. And that is how we landed our first few clients. So if you are mm. getting clients who aren't paying you well and you know your work is good and you want to do better work, A, use those, use that 
as an experience, use that low dollar value client experience to kind of identify what is it that you don't want to do and what is it that you could do better and and then go out there and find those clients. Is it hard work? Yes, it is. Does it pay off? Absolutely. What was your uh, your process back then? Like, how many of those pitches do you reckon you had to send before you got your first good client, or at least your first like not sucky client? I would say about sixty odd pitches in is when we got our first. We we started doing mm. with we started off with social media management services mm. and letting people know. Like, so what I was doing is that I, because I had a blog, I was also doing guest posting for other mom bloggers and things like that. And so letting them know that we're looking for clients was a great place. Mm. But from the pitches, I think we were 60 pitches in when we got our first client for ongoing social media management services. Um, and she was really good to work with. You know, she was a doll company. She sent us her dolls so that we could, you know, actually see how they are. It was a really great experience for us. Um, yeah. And, um, 60 pitches is basically two pitches a day, you know, so, <laughs> and, and this is again, way back when, you know, you did not have access to so many tools that can now speed things up, you know, yeah. or even finding, like finding businesses used to take so much time. Right now you have databases that you can actually just go into and look at and see which business has gotten funding and things like that. Hmm. I'm talking about like, you know, 2011, which was like blogspot days. So <laughs> everything was like dinosaur speed. <laughs> Do you remember the um, the format of your, because I know a lot of people in the community are interested in doing cold outreach and stuff. And we, there's yeah. another uh, copywriter. I don't know if you know her, Delia Monk. I don't know if you know her. But, oh yeah, um, of course I know Delia. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Delia was talking about her approach for doing cold pitching to agency partners. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't, I don't know anyone in the, in the community so far who's had like really smashing success with cold pitching to direct clients. And it sounds mm -hmm. like that's what you're describing here. Uh, oh, yeah. What was your process for that? I mean, obviously, I'm not going to hold you much to it since it's been what you said 2011. So I'm not yeah. going to hold you too much to it. But um, was it I'm just curious how you structured your email. And and now with all your today experience that's happened in the past decade, what you might change if you were to do it again. So I would, in fact, you know, if I knew you were going to ask this, I would have pulled up like a pitch because I had included it way back when I launched Netflix. I did like an ebook on how to have a, like a work from home business, um, mom blog, remember? So, um, <laughs> but broadly speaking, what uh, it would be would just find the business do some research to see whether, because we were doing social media and blogging services at that time. So do some research to see whether they had, you know, a social media presence or a business blog. And if they did not have, then find the person to contact. And then the email itself would say, okay, hey, so-and-so. So I came across XYZ business via, if there is a point of connection there, or if there's not, then just, I just came across this business and it looks really exciting and interesting. And as someone, so for instance, for this doll business, I'm pretty sure I said, you know, as the mom to a, um, <clears throat> to a toddler, dolls are a big part of everyday life. And I can see how your dolls could go ahead and help so many others if only you were able to reach them via mm. Facebook, Twitter. So here are a few ideas on how you could leverage this. If you're interested in chatting more about it or in hiring us, let, mm. you know, set up a call and talk about next steps. And so, the ideas. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah. The ideas were like, you know, 
tactical things that they could do. So, okay, so, you know, how about you share, you know, set what, what some of the parents who bought the dolls said about your dolls? You have okay. them on your website. Why not? They were share? customized. You, they weren't just they like were generic. Fun. They were very much for them. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, sometimes even small wins, um, like back in the day, I remember when we were doing social media, we reached out to a business um, where we saw that Twitter engagement was really low. Mm-hmm. Um we just quickly checked and we used a couple of tools, saw that almost 90% or more than that, the the followers of bots. So maybe uh, whoever was managing the social media earlier. So so we told them we took the liberty to see this and looks like that's why the engagement's really low and we got a response from them. Yeah. So mm. yeah. Love it. You mentioned knowing that there are databases for like finding businesses and stuff. Do you know any of the actual like names of any of the good ones? Because I don't know of any. You could go to something as simple as Crunchbase, right? Crunchbase shows you which startups gotten funding. If they've gotten mm. funding, they've got money to spend. If they've got money to spend. They're probably looking for someone into, you know, either the design or writing or whatever. So I would, yeah, something as Clever. basic as that would help. Yeah. This is such a, I, you have no, so Fathom, I like highlight my gems. And that's so far at 22 gems that I'm like, oh my God, got to call that out. Got to call that out. This is great, guys. Thank you so much for this. All right. So I need to be very intentional about getting through this freaking long thing I want to ask you. But uh, I am curious where you learned, like, so, so for your cold pitching, obviously, like, you don't necessarily take training for that. But with you going on podcasts and stuff, did you, Where'd you learn how to do all this marketing stuff that you're doing now? Was it just gradual bits and bobs or anything in specific that was helpful? I don't think we learned this anywhere. It just kind of, it all evolved pretty organically. Mm. I don't know if that's the answer you're looking for, but I would say we... But, but I think maybe our stints in, in the corporate world, yeah. uh, you're sort of looking at what's happening in different departments, you're collaborating with yeah. them. So I'm pretty sure we picked a lot of that stuff from there. Uh, yeah. A little bit for me when when I was at university because I did a master's in business, so yeah. so that gave some background. Um, but yeah, I think after that it was mainly a lot of testing on what we were doing with our business. Um, obviously, um, in in the latter part, which is say the last six to seven years, we've always invested in skill building. So we are learning different aspects of business, being in mastermind. So that that really helps. So yeah, yeah. Also. So when you are like, for instance, let's say you join a course to learn how to be a better copywriter, right? You're not just learning how to be a better copywriter. You also get to see how is the business owner running their business? Like mm. how is the creator running their business, right? You know, what processes yeah. do they have? So I feel like if you always have a learner's mindset, even if you were to join a very technical course, you can learn a lot about building a business. And I think for us also, the greatest advantage is that the two of us are in the business together. So we tend to bounce ideas off of each other pretty often. Like if Mank sees something interesting that something like, you know, a business is doing, you know, he'll be like, okay, this, you know, this was really cool. And then, or if I see something, so it just kind of, that helps as well, which is probably one reason why for the longest time ever, we were never part of a mastermind, but because, you know, we had each, but then we wanted to learn and kind of be more surrounded by other business owners and you know doing great things um we made the decision to join group programs and masterminds and things like that so and that's obviously helped as well yeah yeah and it seems like the the value that you're describing from masterminds and from these courses is kind of similar it's like it's just keeping your head in the space of being exposed to something 
something more than than just you doing your own thing in your little bubble <laughs> the same way forever. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so with the the way that you guys have worked, like, have you, so you started, I guess let's quickly, quickly, Zach, quickly talk about the trajectory. So you were doing the mom blog, you were doing the writing, and then my uncle, were you in like a corporate job at that time? Yes, yes. I was working with the American Express at the time. So I was part of the customer service department and my team used to manage uh, like the, the dispute resolution. Um, so if you dispute a charge on your credit card, it would come to my team and we would sort of solve that in the back end. Mm. And so in if you were to give me like the two minute version of <laughs> <laughs> the timeline from getting there to where you are now, just wrap up okay. the whole decade in two minutes. What would you say you're kind of like loose trajectory of like different freelance stages and yeah. then agency stages and then productizing and courses? Like what's the flow look like between these? You could spend five minutes if you want. Okay. Thank you. All right. So here it goes. 2008, we have a nine-month-old daughter, and I'm at, I I was working in corporate before that, but decided to take a break to be with our daughter. And so she was nine months, and you know I really needed a creative outlet. Started a mom blog. Mom blog led to me getting to know people online and seeing you know there's a whole world out there, and being very active on Twitter when it was Twitter and not X. 2010 is when mine got really sick and mm. he was um he was on bed rest for almost a year which is when wow. he also had to quit work we a blog reader because i was sharing mom blog right i was sharing what was going on with his health and things like that a blog reader reached out and said hey get his ph levels tested got his ph levels tested turned out he had chronic inflammation started working on his diet and everything because doctors here weren't able to help him at all right so changing his diet really helped his health 2011, he was way better, and that is when we had to decide whether he's going to go back to work or he wanted to turn the very part-time blogging thing into a business. I wanted the stability and the steadiness of the paycheck, but anyways, we decided to give it a year and see how it goes. Um, started with social media management and blogging services because that is what we were doing. Pivoted into copywriting around 2016. 2015. Sorry, end, end of 2015. End of 2015. End of 2015. And then here we are. <laughs> Just summarize all that eight years into here. So what, let's hear that though. Like what was the, the trajectory, like the kinds of projects you were doing, the kinds of clients, yeah. the, the team augmentation, the service offerings, like what's the past eight years look like in that sense? Actually, not eight. Uh, yeah, 2016 to now. Yeah. Okay. Eight years. So, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 Eight years. So 2016 to now. We started with sales pages. That's what my first project was, uh, you know, sales sales page copy. I was, uh, I'd taken a course um, by Bushra Azar and um, gotten like, because I'd started, had, had started getting clients asking, you know, hey, would you write sales pages for us? Or would you write sales emails for us? And I had like, I'd only done blog writing till then, right? So mine was like, let's, why don't you, you know, why don't we add this to the mix? And we were like, okay, so we took a course decided to start doing copy, started doing sales pages. One of the very first sales pages I wrote did really, really well, got me a really good testimonial. I still have it on the side. If you reach out and ask me, I'll tell you which one uh, it was. It was for someone really cool in the industry as well. So that was fun. Um, and then it just kind of led naturally to, hey, would you do sales emails too? Um, 
then I enrolled in, I did copy hackers, um, you know, the, their, um, the copywriter mastermind as well, took copy school, started using a lot of that, but also with every project that we did, we would like, we have a debrief process. We would see, okay, what could be better? Mm. What went really well? What could we have tested out? that we didn't what could you know and from a client perspective also you know just debriefing with clients again to know okay how did things go what can we improve what was the highlight what was the low light all of those things that is when we real and we realized we have a natural gift for strategy and our clients started noticing that and that is when you know we really shifted into not just being i'll write a sales page for you for you but asking what is the sales page going to do for you mm-hmm. and how can we help you do that job better? And that is what has led to us now being known as copywriters, uh, as a copywriting agency that focuses on strategy first. Um, cool. So, yeah. And when you do those uh, debriefs, it sounds like you kind of do an internal one and then one with the client to like build on it. Uh-huh. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, cool. Um, any Besides what you said already about it, anything else of note? I think the idea is really cool about doing a debrief. Anything, if if I'm going to do one, what I got to be sure to ask, like the things you think are most impactful that you run through? Internally or, or with a client? Both. Okay. So you could Let's say internally first with the client next. Yeah. So internally, what we do is we ask ourselves, what did we love working on in this project? What could be better? Um, where did we feel there was a process breakdown? Because... By now, you know, we're big on processes and systems. Um, who would we want on the project next time, you know, if for A, B, and C activities, so we know, you know, where we're headed. And um, and then, of course, you know, um, mine does the number crunching in terms of what was our internal hourly rate. Absolutely. I'm obsessive about time tracking. So when it comes to all writing-related, uh, client-related stuff, including things like, oh, copy kickoff call to 60 minutes or 65 minutes, you know. So I we know exactly how much time from us was involved in the project. So that helps in calculating our, um, you know, our internal hourly rate and seeing if we met the benchmarks. Um, so that's internally it doesn't take a lot of time, but for us, it's very important to enjoy the business that we're building. To be, to you can't be in business for this long if you aren't enjoying it. And you, one thing we're very intentional about is ensuring that we we really, really enjoy the projects that we're working. Mm. We're excited about the businesses that we're working with. So we, that is the reason for these debriefs. Is you don't have to have a really long drawn one, but just taking some time to reflect on what was great. What could be better? Who would you know be a good fit for a similar project the next time? And then, of course, how much did you end up making on it? Yeah, uh, so yeah. want to know that as well because hey, that would that would help you assess totally. your a similar I love project, that. right? So smart. And externally, with clients, we have a um, a f- more formal document that we go over. We look at logistics. We look at we look at how did they feel about the launch? You know, what were the highlights? Where did they feel most stressed? Even if we were just involved in, say, writing the sales page, we would want to know, you know, what worked really well for them as a whole. You know, what, where did they feel they could be better supported? Um, what was, of course, then in terms of, you know, numbers, like what were the conversions from all different sources? You know, how are they, you know, what excited them? What are they looking forward to next? Um, so, 
it's a more formal document. We have a whole list of questions that we uh, that we go over. Yeah. And how long after finishing do you do that with them? For evergreen launches, we try and keep ninety days. So we have Jen from our team, who's our who are who's our VA, reach out to them ninety days after to mm. set up a debrief call. Yeah, because then the funnel's been running for 90 days. If they've mm. been sending enough traffic, we have enough data. For live launches, it happens pretty much once the launch is over, but once they've had time to rest and recover, yeah. um, <laughs> and that's, then we set it up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. I'm, I'm, so something that always strikes me, like running DYF and, and Brennan having run DYF before, like it's, I'm this middle-class American white dude. And so any advice I might give about like lead gen, or cold outreach and stuff. Like it's hard to contextualize it if I were an Indian woman reaching out to American clients from India. Like, do you have anything you want to weigh in for people who are like international mm -hmm. uh, listeners who are, who are wanting to build a US-based client base like you guys did about some of the hurdles you had to overcome in that process? If there's anything you want to add there? One of the first things I would say, and this is, I would say mainly from the perspective of being a writer, if you are offering writing services, you need to be really, really confident in your craft. Um, and how do you feel confident? How do you get confident? A, of course, make sure you're acquiring those skills, but B, make sure that you're getting critiqued for those skills as well. Mm. So that content mail experience that I talked about, that was my first experience working with an editor. The very first article that I submitted, the good thing about that content mail was they weren't just publishing everything, right? They, they had standards, so we had editors, right? And the first article I wrote, I remember it came back with so many red marks. It was like bleeding red all over. And reason enough for me to think you know oh i this is i'm never going to do this because i in my head thought i was a pretty good writer <laughs> but, but taking that feedback and implementing that feedback and knowing that i with every article i submitted i could be better like getting that critique in was key for me and when we started pitching then we knew that the work we were doing is good it's not you know they're not going to be um, cultural references that aren't that aren't going to make sense for, say, an American audience. They're they're not going to be um, typos in our emails. You know, there's not going to be. And right now, like you know, and like I said, this is like way back when. Right now, you have Grammarly. You have you know, different so many things at your disposal that could make sure that what you send out is is error free, is professional, sounds relevant and is, you know, just reflects your expertise. That is number one. Number two would be, number two, I would say for us especially, and even now, is just having that mindset that you're, you know, is there a difference because we're in India and, you know, like someone else may have an inherent advantage by being in the U.S.? Yes, but it's up to you to whether you let that difference hold you back or whether you let it spur you on because... Mm. One thing that we've we've always believed in, like disadvantages, and I'm putting air quotes around this for those of you who are listening on audio, like disadvantages don't necessarily equal defeat. Mm. You got to remember that. This could be disadvantage of location. This could be disadvantage of education. This could be disadvantage of, you know, maybe you like, for instance, I had personal story. I had the, the hugest thing around, you know, oh, but I look very different. Right. You know, and I also grew up hearing, like, okay, you're the brainy one, but, you know, 
so-and-so is the pretty one. So you have mm. those stories in your head from so on, like also, right? But it's up to you to let those, to either let them hold you back or to spur you on. So you got to kind of get into that mindset of, hey, okay, this is a business and I'm going to make it work. And here's what I'm going to do about it. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. That was pretty much us at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And and staying positive. I mean, um, to us, there's no disadvantage of not being, say, in the U.S. or in the U.K. or yeah. Europe. Yeah. Uh, we see serving all of these markets, including the one here. Yeah. So uh, I think it's all about being positive and how you're sort of approaching it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think for somebody not a writer, someone whose craft doesn't depend on their English skills, so let's say designer, developer, something like that. Well, developer, you got to have, so let's say designer. Um, do you think for an English as a second language uh, freelancer, which I don't know if you guys are, but assuming you are and you can weigh in on it, do you think that their priority should be their number one priority if they want to serve American clients or, or English speaking clients should be number one, get to like as close to native level English as they could, or number two, top priority hone their craft, don't worry as much about the English? Like, where do you think English proficiency comes into play? If you're not a writer, honing your craft. You know, we're English, we, we're like English is a second language for us. Okay. Right. We, um, yeah. Uh, so, but because we, we write, and which is why I said, you, if you're a writer like I am, then you first definitely, definitely want to yeah, work. Of course, on if you're a writer, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to write in a way. And you want to cater to the, to the international market. You definitely want to build those, those writing muscles till they're really strong. Um, but if you're a designer, if you're a, a, a virtual assistant who's not answering emails, you know, or even if you are answering emails, it really doesn't make, you know, that's that's fine. You, I would say holding your craft just precedes everything else. Like, yeah. Cool. With the structure of your business, given that you have your bespoke services, your coaching, your courses, I don't know. I. I get the sense my uncle's calculated the effective hourly rates from the different things and stuff. But uh, <laughs> with with the structure as it is, maybe even money aside, but probably factoring in money, do you um is there one you like better, or do you like that you have all of them? I think we love the fact that we have all of them. Mm -hmm. Also, they're sort of complementary because if it was only writing, it could get extremely monotonous. Mm -hmm. And like within writing, that's why we have different niches. So. So a great week for us is when there's maybe a couple of days of writing for clients. There's some writing for our own brand. We have three or four consulting calls. Mm. Um, at the end of the week on Friday, Prena uh, would do a group call for Ray to Sell mm. students. Um, I just feel that gives us a great mix. Mm. Um, we also recognize the fact that all of these are not scalable which is okay for us. Yeah. Uh, so we feel as far as services are concerned, um, we, we probably sort of optimize it to, to a great degree. So this is probably where we're gonna stay at. Mm. Consulting, unless we wanna increase our hours because we've, we're down to about 20 hours a piece mm. uh, that we work in the week, which, which I mean, we are extremely comfortable with, uh, gives us great work-life balance. So I don't think we wanna push consulting more. Um, but obviously, the core side of the business is what we see uh, as as a scalable offer. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I think all three are really important for us. Yeah. And you, so you're at twenty hours a week each, like for everything, like the oh, whole yeah, business. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cool. Nice. Oh yeah. 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 And so yeah. you have 
you have at least one child, I'm guessing, if you were yes. running a mom blog. Yes. <laughs> so that child would be what, like 13 now? No, she's 15. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I was going to ask. So you've got some great work-life balance. So that's cool. So I'm curious, since it's it's less about the money you're saying, like, what is your core why? Like, what drives you to keep pushing and growing and learning? What's all this mm-hmm. for? Okay. Heavy, or not heavy, but it's a deep question to put you on the spot for, and I appreciate it. Yeah, that. I know. No, you can I think don't... about it. <laughs> Uh, no, it's actually a great question. And the reason is, uh, you know, I have a, uh, a very different answer from what I'm sure, you know, anyone else would give you is because our why has changed over the years. Mm. So to be very honest, when we did start the business, our why was simply to make money. Like, yeah, I think we all start there. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. no grand purpose, no changing the world, no, you know, winning prizes or anything like that. Simply Just don't starve to money. death. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what had happened was, so Mike was, like I said, he, he'd quit work. He was in bedrooms for a year. We had medical bills because doctors, right? We basically ate our way through our savings. And mm. we had a daughter who was going to preschool at that time. So there was that as well. So it was, yeah, it was, you know, we basically had no savings. Our first website was made pro bono by um, by my very first boss, like when I got out of college, I started working um, in an ad agency. And when we decided to do the business, I reached out to them and asked them if they would, you know, make a website for us because we did not have a website. And my blog was basically a blog, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, um, so yeah, we, that that is it. So our why was make money. As our business has grown and evolved, our why has come back to or has settled on building an intentionally profitable life for us. And when I, that's become like our, almost like our, our not star is like, yep. is this intentional? Is this profitable? And profitable mm. isn't only money, right? Profitable means being able to build core memories with each other. Like for us, it's travel. Profitable for us means maybe you make the same amount of money, but you reduce the amount of time that you're spending on the business, right? So that's, when we were able to bring our, uh, you know, hours down to 20 hours each, you know, that is something that is profitability for us. Yeah. Um, and we help people do that intentionally profitable, like which is our mastermind. But basically, our even that's why we kind of named it. For us, our why is building a, building a life and not just building a business. So we wanted to be yeah. there for our daughter. Um, that was a why that stayed there um we wanted to be able to do the work that really lit us up that's why that's being intentional about the clients that we work with right you know there are certain clients that we aren't right fits for and we're very very upfront about that and we let people know that um we are intentional about the time that we take away um you know from the business so that we can just kind of stay human you know um we're very intentional about um how we show up how we serve so I think that is our big why right now. Cool. Love it. Thanks. <laughs> I like the idea of looking at this this idea of profit not as an expression of the money, but as an expression of like mm. your whole life as a whole, the freedom, yeah. the flexibility, taking on work yeah. you like, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to go into some of the Q&A. Anyone who's here, I, I've got some pre-submitted ones I'll be asking, but if you're here and you have things that came up during the interview, 
uh, that you want to get more clarity on, type them in, and I'm going to start going through these. So let's see if I'm going to read them, but I'm going to read them to myself first in case we've already answered them. So I'll read them out because otherwise I'll just be silent. It'll be awkward. So Bruce asked, and then we'll figure out if we have to answer it. What are the most important things you guys have learned or best advice you can give? Oh yeah, this is a good one. What are the most important things you've learned or the most important advice you can give about managing freelancers in order to scale and properly manage a lean agency? So basically advice for scaling and managing people. Okay. Yeah. First up, you want to hire slow. You want to take your time with hiring. Um, think about your business when you're hiring and not whatever is the popular advice out there. Um, that, again, goes back to being intentional about growing your business your way. Um, you want to look at, and then in terms of pure management, you want to have, you want to know frequent checkpoints, and but not so frequent that they basically eat at geodays. So you need to figure out a cadence that works best for you. For us, asynchronous meetings are the way to go. We do not do daily stand-ups. We do not do weekly huddles. Nope. We have asynchronous check-ins, um, setting clear expectations around what's, ex- you know, what are their deliverables, um, deadlines, um, and of course, you know, if what kind of turnaround times and things like that um, are expected. Um, respecting boundaries. So for instance, if someone, you know, that someone doesn't work on a Sunday, then sending them a message on a Sunday isn't, Mm. you know, just don't do that. So just kind of respect boundaries, um, goes both ways. If you're part of a team, respect boundaries as well. Um, and, and then like build in your processes, like for us, you know, like with certain contractors, we do have regular debriefs, like with our research contractors, we have regular debriefs, but, um, (laughs) With our designer, we just do a um, once in a month or maybe sometimes, you know, once in two months, uh, sit down like this where we go over, okay, here are the projects that are coming up. Here's what's worked well. What do you need from us? By when do you need it? We do have separate project management things in Notion. We use Notion for our business. So everyone knows, like, for instance, the editor knows when a task is assigned to her. The designer knows when a task is assigned to her. So everyone knows what what they're working on. And... um, when do we expect that? If there's a deadline that cannot be met, we just let us know ahead of time. Mm. I think at the end of the day, you you want to see is is client experience as important to them as it is to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I think everything's in sync. Mm-hmm. So you know, then the will to work is there. Skill is something you could always work on. Yeah, attitudes great and positive. So I think that's probably the most important thing that we look at. Yeah, mm. yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Sam asked how you guys balance the professional and personal relationship. Like if you designate certain times for yes, business talks and no business talks. Sounds like yes. All right, let's hear it. it This has been a work in progress, right? So we'll be very honest with you. So we bring complementary skills to the table, like Mike was saying, Hmm. but we're also very different personality types, right? So I'm very type A, very driven. I can be on go mode all the time. Um, Mike is not like that. Okay. So um, one of the things that we consciously had to work on is wrapping up work and shutting down shop talk. Because if it were up to me, I could talk business all the way 24-7. It gets very exhausting. If you are not that kind, (laughs) it's a drink, is it? So um, 
So yeah, so what we now do, what we works really well for us is a we have a firm shutdown time. So now, for instance, we generally wrap up work, and we we've pretty much stuck to this even when our daughter was small. Is that you know when she comes back from school is when we kind of shut down work. So right now, you know, when she comes, she she's in grade ten now. So um, when she comes back, that's around four twenty four thirty in the evening. Yeah. We shut down work. We do have calls like this one, which sometimes happen in the evening. Um, but now, once this call is done, work is done. So we would not talk about work. We, you know, oh, that'd be so hard. Really, yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> yeah. right? But yes, uh, one of the things that will that's worked for me is that if I if I think of something that is work related, I write it down now, mm. and then I bring it up the next day. Uh, earlier, I would just, you know, go, okay, one last thing, you know, yeah. or one last thing, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, this sounds yeah. like my thing with my girlfriend. We've been trying to get me to channel some of it into chat GBT, where it's like, just Zach, go talk to <laughs> chat about it. <laughs> <laughs> it has not had great yeah. results yet, but the writing yes. down, that's a good one. Table it. For yeah. So that's something that's worked really well for us. Then of course, um, you know, keeping weekends um, work free because like that's been great sports integrating sports into our daily life like my yep. tennis i've started learning how to swim so that was great um so just kind of getting non-work hobbies non-work yeah. time intentionally building all of that means yeah. that it's you not, can yeah not Plus having work, work be your whole relationship foundation exactly right? exactly absolutely vacations we take laptop free hmm. vacations regularly what? like don't yeah. Work? Oh yeah. my God. I'm scared to do that. I wouldn't I do it. I couldn't do it. I need it. <laughs> I'll get there one day, maybe. So, uh, yeah. So, those have been some ways that we've been able to kind of keep the, yeah. you know, keep the boundaries between work and personal very clear. It's not always been like that. So if you're just starting out working with your partner or your spouse, you know, and it's okay if it kind of feels really messy right now because that's that was us. And we've been doing this now for over 12 years. So, but yeah, for the last few years, it's been hmm. pretty clear around, you know, just kind yeah. of keeping our boundaries very clear. I think travel's another big part for us. So, I mean, obviously, last two or three years, it's been different, but typically we would have about 90 day, like a 90 day sprint, finish that and then probably travel for about three to five days. Mm -hmm. uh, not all of them are laptop free, but we try and keep them sort of work free. So mm -hmm. it gives us time to rest and recharge and then you're back again for another 60 or 90 days. So mm -hmm. so that yes. really helps as well. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, well, let me, let me think how to structure the last one. So do you have a hard stop in six minutes or if it's a few minutes over, is that okay? I might cut one of these questions. It's totally fine. It's, yeah. So if it goes over by like three to five minutes, you won't murder yeah, me. Sure. Because sure. I know I'm now infringing on your shutdown complete and I don't want to do that. So I can totally <laughs> cut one of these if you want. No, no, it's okay. That's okay. fine. So uh, Tim had asked, so you guys, you guys do some strategic content. You do your podcast, that sort of thing. Um, he's He was specifically asking this probably from an SEO perspective, but even if that doesn't play a part and it's just how you guys create content that like hits the mark, I'm sure that'll answer it. So he says, I'd love to hear some details on their strategy, especially their process to plan, create, and monitor content. And then I asked a follow-up question and he said like more specifically how they choose keywords that relate to their customers' pain points and then what their strategy is for pushing people who read their blog through the funnel, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so 
we do very basic keyboard research, quite honestly. I tend to use, um, I use the Keywords Everywhere tool. If you haven't gotten it installed on your Google Chrome, you should be using it. It gives you great insight into search volumes, competition, and all of the good stuff. What I look for is uh, when creating content, what mine can I kind of focus on is A, what is it that we're promoting? And B, how is this going to serve our clients? You know, because even if someone were not to buy from us and, you know, most people don't buy from you right away, which is okay. You do want them to walk away with value after they've read your blog post and kind of reference it and bookmark it and share it all over. Right. So that's the whole idea behind our blog content is, um, yes, there are keywords. Um, no, it isn't, you know, just SEO articles. It's very tailored to what are some of the challenges that we see Um even like clients or questions that clients come to us with. For instance, you'll find a very detailed blog post on the article on bonuses because I got so tired of seeing bonuses that were basically glitter wrapped rocks that I needed to put something together to help, you know, anyone who comes to us, whether they are prospects or clients or whatever, to create bonuses that were great value for their clients. So there's a huge blog post on that. There's a lot on pricing your services because we used to see Everyone on Instagram share, charge what you're worth. Okay, worst advice ever. <laughs> what do you mean charge what you're worth, right? Like you need like you need to kind of look at everything we just talked about when you're pricing your services. So are those articles optimized for search? Yes. Are those the best keywords that we should be writing for? No, but for us, like going back to client experience, anyone who comes to the blog should walk away with a great experience. So that's our strategy in a nutshell. Cool, love it. Um, another one from Sam. It's almost like a key hire question, but like, and I think it sounds like the answer was maybe the editor. But um, he said, like, what's the most useful contractor relationship or outsourced job for your agency growth? And then I clarified, um, is he asking a key hire? And he's like saying, yes, exactly. So in some cases, mm -hmm. maybe not the first hire or whatever. Um, so he's interested to hear. Yeah. I would say it kind of varies. It depends. I would not say, you know, it's one is more valuable than the other. They all bring very different yeah. talents to the table. So, you know, our designer is just as valuable as our editor and our editor is just as valuable as our research specialist. Um, so, and our research specialist is just as valuable as our VA because without one or the other, you know, there would be a bump in the road for for our process and until we don't solve for that. Like, so yeah, they're all equally valuable for us. But if you were asking us, who would you want to hire first? I think we already addressed that. We want to look at your business and what is it that you want to add to your process? Yeah, that was going to be the rephrases. I'd say like, if you were to say, what's the biggest rule of thumb for deciding who the key first hire would be? Would yeah. you say, is it is it the amount of their process, of your process that they would own? Or like, what makes that decision for you? If it was one quick rule of thumb soundbite. I, th I think typically we are looking to solve a problem where either we are saving time mm. or that person's going to help us with building our revenue. Yeah. So that's typically what we are looking at um, because there are aspects of business where we are pretty good, mm. but hiring that out really saves time yeah. and helps us do things which are more productive, more profitable, mm. and hence we we can add to the top line. Mm. So so it's either saving time or can this help us Make get more, more revenue? Yeah. yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It really does. Um all right. So I'll skip I'll skip my question. That's what I'll do is I'll cut my own question from the FAQ 
and I, w- I just won't ask it. So let's go into the closing. Then you'll be only one minute late to your life. So <laughs> anything you think I should have asked that I didn't, that would like help people compare business models or um, get a sense of like what kind of business they want to grow, that kind of thing. I think probably, I mean, you've asked really great questions, but probably asking, you know, like kind of looking at, okay, so why did you decide to offer services and products and, you know, and work? So maybe, you know, like, why did you mix up a, multiple services, which whereas, you know, most people would tell you go with one program, one service, get known for, get known for that. But, and I feel like we did kind of cover that, but. So why did you, if you were to quickly say it? To keep things interesting. You know, if you, if you don't, if you prefer structure and stability and routine to everything that you're doing and you want to kind of really automate everything up, you know, or streamline stuff out, you know, and you want to just keep doing the same thing and that gives you joy, go for Mm. that. Do not do this because for us, keep keeping things interesting is huge. Otherwise we could get bored really fast. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. I've come to appreciate that something I really enjoy is scaling businesses, like for the, mm-hmm. the sake of the scaling. And so in that case, mm-hmm. having too diverse of a service offering would prevent me from doing the thing that it turns out I like. So yeah, I love I love that way of looking at it. Um, yeah. Anything you want to add or any parting words, anything I missed that you just really want to make sure people hear? Yeah, I just want to quickly answer a couple of questions that I see in the chat. Like, um, so Jasmine asked, you know, uh, what are your best tips for managing clients who are not so knowledgeable about copywriting? Is best tip would be you need you're the expert. They're coming to you for the expertise. So you need to if you need to do it. If you need to educate your clients, you do that. You could do that through your blog. You could send them blog posts. You could do that on your discovery calls. You could do that through your proposal. Like my proposal walks them through my process. When we send out a proposal, even after a call with them, is it, you know, is it pretty much templatized? Yes. But does it walk them through the process again, even though they've heard about it and have seen it in the recommendations, like the the service recommendations that we send out the magazine before the call? Yes, but you still want to do the job. So yeah. Uh, If you work with templates, how do you make sure... um, Clients provide valuable input to you. I don't use templates. I have, I, yeah, that's like my big thing. Do not use templates. Do not recommend templates. You, I'm not a template person, so I cannot answer that question for you. Um, but yeah. Do you like you theme plates? Like I know uh, Rice Force has yes, theme plates. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So right is a, a really good friend uh and uh, team plates yes and what i call uh, what i use essentially are recipes which are pretty similar to team plates as well where you have like basic structures and you can kind of mix and match the steps but the last thing you want to do is use plug and play templates i mean yeah. that's me yeah. and would never use templates um and then so yeah i'm last... glad you caught these because my chat thing didn't show the notification so yeah you're get back to this social media is that the next one I yeah think we got? the social media i would you know we would recommend starting with one that you are really comfortable with and then adding on the others for us we're right now most active on instagram and um and facebook um more the profile than the page and um we are We've added LinkedIn to the mix lately, but we aren't terribly active on it. So for us, Instagram is is our is our place to hang out. So yeah, if you're on Instagram, go ahead, follow us. And I was gonna say, if I wanted to follow you on Instagram, where would I do that? 
<laughs> We're at Content Bistro. So just type in at Content Bistro. You would, when you are on Instagram, you would see us there. So cool. yeah, it would be great to hang out with you. Before I do the sign up, is there anything else you want to add that you wish was asked? Oh, gosh, no. I think this was a great conversation. Yeah. We had lots of fun. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. All right. So guys uh, in the audience, thanks so much for coming. People listening later, thanks for listening. Uh, you can check these guys out at contentbistro.com. And if you want to hear, well, I'll let you guys give the proper pitch. But if you want to hear <clears throat> their best wisdom, you can do that at contentbistro.com slash newsletter. What, what do I get by joining your newsletter? You get weekly emails on copywriting tips, techniques that I'm testing out, as well as strategies to propel your profitability. And as I understand it, these copywriting tips help me even if I'm not a copywriter and maybe especially exactly. if I'm not a copywriter, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. so who should join? Just any, anyone? Should any freelancer join? Anyone who wants to see a return on investment on the words they write and the business they're building. Cool. And what was the URL for that? Contentbistro.com backslash newsletter. Cool. Well, thank you guys again so much for being here. This was a lovely interview. It was really nice to go deep like this. I Tell your daughter I said I'm sorry for the five minutes late. <laughs> and uh, okay, so I'll hit, I'll hit stop the recording. And everyone in the audience, thanks for coming. And then you guys don't leave quite yet. Yes, thank you.